Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back, friends. We hope that you're doing well out there. I feel like I say that every week, but I mean it every time. I promise. She really does. Really like, do. she only says these things with all the authenticity in the I world. I do. I know that it's, like, probably really annoying, but it is what it is. It's who I am. Mm. It's who I am. It's true. On both counts. Just such a genuine good person. Now stop. You beautiful mm. spirit. <laughs> so, um, what do we have to say to people? It's Today, um, as of this recording, I feel like we talk about the weather like every episode, and I feel like that is very Midwestern. <laughs> the most of Midwestern us. thing we can do. <laughs> it's so Midwestern of us. But today is February twenty eighth, as of this recording, the last day of February. My child is officially three years old, mm-hmm. and today it was over fifty degrees today. It was a beautiful day. Oh my god! So when I took her outside, when she stepped on the front porch, she literally screamed, "It's spring!" And it was the cutest thing ever. It was so cute. Yeah. So I don't know if we want to do a ton of weather talk, but that's my moment of that today. Also, I have a three-year-old. I mean, every year, I like convince myself that March first is the beginning of spring. Mm -hmm. Even though you know as well as I do that we get snow and ice well into April. Sometimes, yeah. So really to me, March but, is like, it's the first week of, or the first day of just like, everything is muddy for a month. It's mud season. Yeah. But I feel like this year, like we've really got some good spring weather. Yeah, we've got some good spring. We deserve it. I think we deserve some yeah. good spring vibes here. Aside from that, I just got my head bleached and it's itchy. Aw, so, it looks cute. You know. You I got no more roots. Yeah, I like that you bleach your hair to so that your also blonde roots don't show. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. I want it to be as white as possible. Yes, and that's what I want for you because I'm obsessed with that, and I can't yeah. do it, so I have to live through you. Yeah, I mean, my skin is entirely bone white. My hair should be entirely bone white. I'm still trying to find the exact perfect eyebrow filler that it still looks like I have eyebrows, Mm. but they look white. Yeah, you just need like a makeup tutorial for Victorian child ghosts, and I think that will be... That's your look, man. (laughs) (laughs) And I... Hattie, hit me up. Yes, hi Hattie. And I say that with all the love in the world, as you know. Yes. I'm getting my hair technicolored tomorrow, so that's... We'll Ooh, see. That's yeah, I gotta get some fun. We've been doing this thing where we like leave the top natural, but then we put all this crazy color underneath, and that's really mm-hmm. fun. So you just get like a hint of something like teal or something delightful, you know. I'm excited. It's cute that you have enough hair to do that. Oh yeah, I have got. <laughs> oh my gosh, I've got so much hair. I was looking at pictures, so I get every time my kid has a birthday, I get these like. I get really nostalgic, obviously, so I look through all the pictures and everything, and when I had her, I had one inch of hair, Yes. and now I have a lion's mane, and it's just crazy. Anyway. Anyway, so I've got a story for you this week. Do you have any updates or anything before we get started? No. Okay. 
Um, Governor, Governor Pritzker ended cash bail. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm. And, and eliminated it and replaced it with what? I have been too busy this week to actually look into it, mm. but either, um, like court supervision, house mm. arrest, or you just have to stay in jail. Basically, it's a system equalizer because obviously cash bail privileges those with money. Yes, big time. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, good. Okay. So it's a progressive so. mood. I'm with it. Okay. Yeah, That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. 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 It done with good intentions. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I'll have to do some more reading about that. Okay. I don't have anything, so I'm just going to get started then. All right. I am really excited about the location of this week's case. And I have to say that this one was on my list of things to do before we even started the show. Like I had my list when we were just kind of talking about it and everything. Mm-hmm. And this was on my list and it was weird because I was I was just looking for um, Northern Michigan cases. I wanna take us to Northern yes. Michigan. And then I found this case and it's bonkers. And it is situated in Iron River, Michigan, which is the tiny, incredibly obscure Upper Peninsula town that I spent my summers in in high school. That's so cool. Yeah, it was so random. So I bumped into this case mm. and I stopped reading about it because I think I might have sent you something about it. And you're like, I'm doing yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, done, stop, yeah. not reading anymore. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that. I remember that text. I was like, no, <laughs> no, don't do it. Yes, but I was just like, this place is so random. So basically, like my family's from Detroit and then one of my mom's sisters moved up to this town when her husband got offered a job a billion years ago to work for the Michigan State Police. So Mm -hmm. uh, he was a state trooper, and that's where they sent him, up to this town. So I have uh, a set of cousins that are from up there, and so that's where we vacationed when I was in high school. So I know this place really, really well, and this place is really unique. So I thought, like, no matter what was going to happen in this case, I wanted to talk about it because (laughs) I wanted to talk about this place because it's so... It's gotten almost kind of supernatural vibe to it. I'm so excited to hear about yeah, this Yeah, so case. roll with me. Okay. Iron River, Michigan. Um, so Michigan is a mitten, and then you've got the Upper Peninsula, which is the part that's not a mitten. I think it kind of looks like a wolf head with a really long tail. Okay. Iron River, Michigan is um, in kind of the far western part of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. So you're very close to Canada, and it's very, very remote. It's a tiny town, about 2,800 people, and it's a town that a lot of people would describe as depressed. And when I say that, what I mean is that basically it's a town whose primary industry uh, has come and gone. You know, its heyday, as with so many of the towns up there, is copper and iron mining. And that, you know, came and went. And then, so basically what's kind of left is um, a town that's just kind of like built to sustain itself at this point. Yeah. There is some degree of industry still there. There's a big casino. Uh, there is a place called Ski Brule that's basically like a skiing resort, a ski resort. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, there's some we casinos. I know. I've been wanting to go. Ever since I started digging into this, I really want to go up there. So can we go? Can we go? Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Okay, anyway, keep okay. going. Keep going. I'm marking it on my calendar. Please do. Okay, so um, basically it is kind of an outdoors person's dream, but the landscape of it is just beautiful. It is got a lot of, like, rolling hills because actually up in the western part of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, there's a small mountain range called the Porcupine Mountains. They're <laughs> small mountains, but 
you know, they're mountains for Midwesterners. They're the highest mountains in the Midwest. <laughs> um, so you do have kind of a foothills sort of vibe to it. You know, you see up there just the imprint of glaciers, essentially. There's like tons and tons of inland lakes, waterfalls. You've got these like deep, dark forests. And the animal life up there is insane. Huh? Yeah, I used to be able to hear wolves howling, like at the hotels we stayed at and stuff like that. I've seen bears up there, like on the side of the road. There are mountain lions. It's just like it's it doesn't feel like the Midwest in a lot of ways. Like it feels like you are somewhere else. I feel like the whole UP is like that, though. Yeah. Like you cross over and it really feels like you're in a different world. Yeah. I think especially once you get out of the like stuff immediately across the bridge. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And there's just like there's so much area up there that like from Detroit where I grew up to get up to Iron River, we used to take the bus like the Greyhound bus and it was like a 16 to 18 hour bus ride. Yeah, I mean, that was real fun. I got stories. Um, (laughs) So Iron River is like right outside. There's these like a couple of little towns that are just kind of a tiny town connected by a street, tiny town connected by a street, like a little string of them. Mm -hmm. And they all kind of brush up against the Ottawa National Forest, which is massive, um, millions of acres Mm -hmm. of national forest. Um, And then the other stuff that is kind of remarkable, the landscape there are these old mine pits. So uh, when the mines shut down, a lot of time they would collapse and basically become ponds. So you get these like incredibly deep but small ponds that you can find um, in these towns and just kind of around the area. It's so dangerous. It's so dangerous. It's so hypnotizing when you see them because you can tell how deep they are. In a lot of ways, like when I think about this area, the word that comes to mind for me is hypnotizing. Like... There's just mm-hmm. something about it that just feels kind of magic. Like, it smells different. <laughs> it really does. Like, it's so disconnected. You know, your phone's not going to work very well up there. Mm-hmm. You're going to be driving a, a couple hours to Green Bay to go to a mall, like that type of thing. So, yeah, it's just really, really remote. And then Iron River itself is, like, particularly isolated just because of how small it is. 2,800 people. And in some ways, like, towns like that, I feel like, just become a really good place to hide. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of from whatever, whatever person wants to hide from. I say that because I think when we talk about all these, like, isolated places, you have kind of two sides to it, right? There's that, like, idyllic, mm-hmm. quiet, peaceful, I can kind of come here and reinvent myself type of, of vibe to it. And then on the yeah. other hand, there's that it's this bleak landscape There's kind of a hopelessness, I think, to the economic situation up there in some ways. Um, And I think sometimes that isolation can lead to a feeling of um, desolation, really. Yeah. And so because of that, I want to talk a little bit about, like, some of the mental health issues up there a little bit. Just kind of set that, some demographics here. So Iron River certainly has suffered economically as a result of um, the mines leaving. There's a couple of uh, decent-sized manufacturing plants out there, and there's pretty good tourist activity, especially surrounding the um, ski brule. But it's Iron County, where Iron River is, is the only county in the UP that doesn't border a Great Lake. So you don't have, like, the lake, you know, the big lake aspect to it. Yeah. But I think something that's happened, like, big time in the UP in the past you know, 20 years is just the impact of the opioid epidemic and just the impact of drug use in general. So what you do find up there is that crime is surprisingly common and um, 
suicide rates actually in the UP are double the rate of the rest of the state. And that's attributed in large part to basically two things, the isolation and the drugs. The five counties with the highest rates of alcohol abuse in Michigan are all located in the UP. Really? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And um, I saw this other map that I couldn't get good enough numbers for it, but basically, like, when you look at the increase in drug overdoses, they all just, like, speckle that UP. And the LP is, like, Mm -hmm. pretty constant. And so this other fact I saw was, to me, dizzying that more people die each year of drug overdoses in Michigan than of car accidents. What? Yeah. And a lot of that is in the UP. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like you go up there and you see these, like, beautiful little resort towns and stuff and all this beautiful nature, but a lot of, like, the year-round population there is just struggling in a lot of ways. Like, my yeah. my uncle um, that was a state trooper up there, he's retired now, but... Like, on the occasion that he would talk about some of the crimes that he was working on, some of them were just bonkers. Like, yeah, really depressing stuff driven by a lot of desperation. And yeah. that's not to, like, besmirch this place at all. I love this place. I feel very kind of emotional about it, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of really magical people are up there. I just think you can't tell a story about this place without thinking about it as kind of... You know, it's a place where people take refuge, but then you have to ask the question, what are you taking refuge from? Yeah. And what does that refuge look like? Exactly. It's always like the biggest, scariest thing to me. Totally. And how sustainable is that refuge? Yeah. And that's got kind of a bit to do with our case today. All right. Yeah. Like all that to say, it's a really amazing place, but sometimes also just a punishing one, honestly. I love all the scene setting that we do. Me too. I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah. I really enjoy it. I, um... Definitely was like Airbnb how much it would cost right now to just go up there because <laughs> I really, <laughs> I really want to go. Um, uh, maybe we should do. Maybe that. we should. I think we probably should. Honestly, what are you doing after you move? We'll figure it out. So, <laughs> before I get into the like the case itself, let's just talk about uh, resources for a second. So, uh, for this right. one. There is um, an episode of Crime Watch Daily that really, really bothered me, but has good information. It just really bothered me. And then there's a four-part ID investigation discovery documentary called Dead North that follows this case extensively. And then Mm -hmm. beyond that, I was mostly looking at, um, I was trying to stick to local news from Michigan and the Midwest in general rather than national news Mm because it could get pretty sensational once you kind of blow it out. Yeah. So I recommend Dead North. I don't recommend the Crime Watch Daily. Hmm. Yeah. The Crime Watch Daily. I know. They call, well, I'll get into it later. All right. So this case centers around a gentleman by the name of Christopher Regan. Chris Regan was born on April 26, 1961. He uh, was born in San Antonio, Texas, and I couldn't find a ton of information on his life before his move to Iron River, but I do know that he was a father of two, uh, two boys, and he was definitely an avid outdoorsman. He was raised primarily in the Detroit area. What took his family from Texas to Detroit, I don't know, okay. but he went. And he joined the Air Force after high school. So he had um, like a 20-year career with the Air Force. Oh, wow. Yeah, and was definitely kind of a celebrated, you know, person within that, within that world for sure. So he 
like I said, was raised in the Detroit area. While he was in the Navy, he was stationed at one point in Marquette, Michigan, which is in the UP. It's the biggest city in the UP. And that's kind of how he comes to have ties to the UP, essentially. Now, after he left the service, he settled down in Traverse City, Michigan, which is uh, in the northern part of the Lower Peninsula, kind of another, like, touristy, very touristy town. Very touristy. Beautiful, but they're going to suck up all your money. So he settled down in Traverse City. That's where he got married and had his two kids. But at some point, he had a kind of a falling out with his family, essentially. Like, I got the sense that there was mm-hmm. not, you know, a good relationship between him and his ex-wife. Um, he certainly had a falling out with his oldest son, Chris Regan Jr. And so I kind of see him as this kind of, like, Rolling Stone type of guy. Like, doing his best, nice guy, but, you know, kind of a lot of struggle. A lot of tragedy in some parts yeah. of that life. And never really able to find stability, it sounds like. Basically, yeah. So, now, when he had been in Marquette in the 80s... The one thing that did kind of provide him some, a little bit more to our backstory is that he dated this woman named Terry O'Donnell. So he like casually dated her in the 80s when he was up there um, with the Air Force, totally fell out of touch. And then in like classic 2000s fashion, they reconnected on Facebook and (laughs) (laughs) started texting and like chatting and all that. And by, like, the mid-2000s, they were, um, like, an item again. So he moved up to Iron River, where she was a school teacher, uh, to be with her. So that's how Chris Regan came to be in the UP. So, uh, and Terry O'Donnell, oh my gosh, she is so cute. I am obsessed with her. (laughs) She's a teacher. She's adorable. And it sounds like... Like somebody I know. I know, right? So it's just, like, it kind of sounds like that is where things started to kind of click into place a bit for Chris. Like, his colleagues would describe him as friendly, outgoing-ish, maybe a little guarded, but, like, a nice guy, a super, super smart guy with just this little edge of, like, military discipline. He was also kind of a hunk. I can see it. He's pretty cute. Yeah, he's like a cute dad, you know? Before we get to any of the ugly stuff, I want to talk about just how lovely their relationship was. Like... Terry and Chris had this beautiful relationship for a while. Um, He loved outdoor activities. So, um, you know, and Terry's just, like, lovely, vibrant person. So they did a lot of, like, kayaking and hiking and all these good, like, up north stuff together. Um, Mm -hmm. He pretty quickly landed a really decent job at a manufacturer called Lakeshore Systems. And that place... um, is basically a manufacturer of marine and defense equipment and mining equipment. So kind of a nice way of like taking some of that UP history and um, kind of building some industry of the future on it, which I appreciate. Oh, we like that. Yeah. And so um, because of his military background, actually, he was able to get a really good leadership position kind of right out of the gate, mm-hmm. which in some ways made him a couple of enemies. Because there were, of course, people that were there for, like, a long time that thought that they deserved that type of job. And he kind of walks in as the new guy and gets a leadership position. Yeah. Yeah. So there's going to be a little bit of, you know, annoyance there. Yeah. But, you know, Chris was a really, really sharp guy and, you know, did a really, by all accounts, just a really good job at Lakeshore. Mm -hmm. Now, Terry O'Donnell was his girlfriend and she described him in an interview as a really wonderful man that she really loved, but someone that had two sides to him. So this is where we get a little bit of darkness. So 
In the summer of 2014, she went on a trip to England without Chris. And while she was gone, Chris cheated on her. So he was cheating on her in that summer. And um, he had just kind of by this point also... Terry kind of described it as just this, like, growing discontent, basically. He was like, you know, you move to the UP, and it's beautiful. You just do all these activities mm-hmm. and all that. And then after a while, like, the desolation of it and the, um, yeah. I think, like, that long, dark winter. I mean, UP winter starts in early October and lasts until May. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's punishing. So he was just kind of over it in a lot of ways. So because of that, just kind of being over it and the fact that he had cheated on her, they decided to call off their relationship. Okay. But it's important to know that they called off their relationship but remained friends, like talked pretty frequently and like kind of cool way of reconnecting. And I don't think that Terry especially wanted to let it go. And when you see her in interviews, you know, I think there was probably something else to that. But yeah, there's a lot of romantic undercurrent to this story today. Yes. We love romance. We do. Oh, I've got, I just have, oh, I got some stuff for you. <laughs> so, um, so there was that. And then at about this time as well, so Chris had had a knee surgery in August. And so he was having a really hard time on his knee that had been operated on. So he was also having a really hard time kind of keeping up with his work at Lakeshore, which mm-hmm. was kind of like, it was partially like kind of a management position, but also still a pretty manual labor type position. Yeah, I still got to be involved. Yeah, in so he was hurting. So all of that basically led him to seek out a desk job in the same industry in Asheville, North Carolina. So at about this time in the fall of 2014, Chris was planning on moving to North Carolina, and he was actually going to take his son, Chris Regan Jr. with him um, because they had been kind of working on rebuilding their relationship. So they had been kind of planning, like, let's move together. We'll kind of start over, like, father and son. And Was his son living with him in the UP? No. Or was he living his separate? His son was still downstate. So they okay. had just kind of been in touch and everything. Um, but that was kind of the plan, just to kind of help them, you know, rejuvenate their relationship a bit. Okay. And a lot of the same things that I think are appealing about in the UP, you can also find in some of those towns out there in the South, you know, without <laughs> yeah, the nine months the prettiness, of winter. the outdoorsiness. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, Terry and Chris, like, they remained friends. And I think probably this helped in some way, just the breakup and the fact that he was leaving. I could see, just in kind of trying to build a profile of Chris, like, I could see it kind of liberating him a little bit as far as the affairs he was having or the... Mm -hmm. affair he was having that we'll kind of talk about in more detail kind of had like at that point just kind of not a whole lot of cares to give at that point like he could just kind of do you know kind of do Mm -hmm. what he wanted knowing he was leaving so yeah this takes us to october 27th 2014 on october 27th terry o'donnell felt really worried about chris because she hadn't heard from him since the 14th Yes, that's a that's a while. They talked, sounded like not quite daily, but more than weekly, you know, like a few times a week. Yeah, yeah. So when you don't hear from somebody in almost two weeks, then you do start to worry. Yeah, right. Like you and I talk most days. But if mm-hmm. we go two or three days without talking, I'm not necessarily going to be worried about you. If I don't hear from you in a week, I'm going to be like, you need to um, please talk to me. 
Are you alive? Yeah. And if I don't hear from you in two weeks, I am going to be a little bit worried, you know? You would have messaged my partner long before. Oh, anyway. yeah. Like in five hours. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> You know, there wasn't necessarily a reason to like, oh my gosh, it's October 15th and I haven't heard from Chris. I'm going to freak out now. But two weeks, that is a while to not hear from an adult, you know? Yes. Yeah. So Terry, like in that couple of weeks, she had, um, she had a friend that worked at Lakeshore and she asked if they had seen Chris at work. And that person said, no, not since about the 14th. But about that time, Chris had also given us two weeks notice to Lakeshore uh, in preparation mm-hmm. for his move to Asheville. So people at Lakeshore just thought, like, maybe he gave us two weeks, but then decided to just go ahead and leave anyway. Mm-hmm. So people at Lakeshore, I think because he had given us two weeks, were, like, not really that fussed about it, you know? It's kind of a shitty thing to do, but I've definitely known people that have done it. Yeah, so. for sure. So I, I think they're, you know, there's not a ton of reason to be, like, mad at them. And it's so tricky when adults go missing because it's, like, Mm-hmm. Adults can leave of their own volition, and you know, police don't tend to take you too super seriously unless there's like real evidence of something, you know, kind of bad going on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but Terry, like, it just wasn't sitting right with her. So, she finally on the 27th went to the Iron River Police Station. This woman has a title, but I added to it. Okay, so yep. she met Iron River Police Chief and actual badass Laura Frizzo. I love Laura Frizzo. So, yeah, Laura Frizzo was the first police chief ever appointed to that position as a woman in the UP ever. So she's amazing. And Laura Frizzo, she took Terry pretty seriously because Terry just obviously had kind of done her own homework. Like, I've talked to this person, this person, this person. No one has seen Chris. And she could just tell that Terry was just upset, you know? Yeah. So... Chief Rizzo, um, oh, she's a goddess. So, <laughs> Just keep fawning. It's uh, fine. She's amazing. So she eventually lost her job over this entire investigation, which I'm not going to go into what? too much, but there's some weird politics stuff going on with this that are just pretty dizzying. Mm-hmm. So uh, her first step was basically like, let's retrace Chris's steps, who he last talked to, work, all that stuff. So Chris... Basically, um, he had told Terry on or about the 14th that he was going to his girlfriend's house or the woman he had been having an affair with for dinner. Mm -hmm. And so between uh, Terry and also the HR person at Lakeshore, they were able to figure out that the girlfriend's name was Kelly Cochran. Kelly Cochran was a married woman who lived in Caspian, Michigan, which is just the next town over, that Chris had had, like, kind of a semi-secret affair with. Like, it sounded like people at work, like, they knew about it, but they weren't, people weren't talking about it. You know, they obviously weren't talking about each other as boyfriend-girlfriend because Kelly was married. Terry knew about the dinner with Kelly at her house. So Chief Rizzo's like, okay, that means Kelly Cochran is, you know, someone we should be talking to at some point let's talk to her yeah Yeah. in that kind of first couple of days because terry o'donnell had found it first terry said that she had found chris's car at an m dot park and ride they're basically just like little parking lots Mm -hmm. that you know you can kind of park at and then carpool or whatever car off and then jump on a train or a bus or whatever yeah so there's a park and ride about four miles east of downtown iron river and that was where chris's car was 
And this was very unusual because Chris loved his car. He had this like pretty new, it was like a one-year-old Hyundai Genesis, which is kind of a little sporty little outfit. And he loved that car. So in Terry's mind, there was no way that Chris was going to just like leave town and not leave in that car. Mm -hmm. Conceivable that he could leave, right? Mm -hmm. But he would take that car with him. Because he loved yeah, it. Why would you choose to take a bus or a train out of town? Yeah. And just knowing that town, that's not where the bus is anyway. Huh. The park and ride is on US 2, and it's like four miles east of town, like downtown. Where you catch the Greyhound bus is actually a little bit west of town. So it's not where you would even get to a convenient bus. It's basically just like off so the highway. So what's the point of the park and ride? Ask MDOT. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Now, of course, that could have changed. You know, I was last there in, like, 2005. Like, perhaps it's different now, but probably, probably. I don't think a whole lot changes in that town. But anyway, it's weird that his car is It's weird. It's weird. Um, the car looks pretty undisturbed. There's nothing, like, weird about the car. There's no blood. There's no nothing. But what was inside the car was a little bit jarring. So... Chris had had that knee surgery in August uh, and was using a knee brace pretty consistently. Um, and he was using one of those ones that kind of looks almost like a cast, like kind of covers like your mid thigh down to your mid um, shin. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that knee brace was in the car. So another theory that some of the police officers that were not down with Laura Frizzo's investigation they figured that he had just like kind of gone hiking and got lost. If, if you're wearing that intense of a knee brace, because imagine it's the one with like the joints mm -hmm. and the, yeah, you don't just take that off to go for a hike. No, what? yeah, you tighten it up before you go out there, you know. If you're brave enough to go hiking, if you have to wear exactly, it. and like he was a physical guy for sure, and like somebody that's you know mm -hmm. he was really in his body and really in the outdoors. So I could buy him going for a hike, but leaving behind the knee brace as well as a water bottle in the car seemed unusual mm. what else was in the car was um a decent amount of brush which like leaves and stuff which again like up there you're off-roading half the time anyway <laughs> so like not that interesting but then also handwritten directions to kelly cochran's house so at that point that's when chief rizzo was like okay we gotta go over there and, and see what's up yeah yeah so the house was in Caspian, like I said, but it's just one town over. So when you're talking about these, like, different towns, you're really just talking about, like, it's three miles away, you know? Um, yeah. So the Cochran house was 66 Lawrence Street in Caspian. There's nothing remarkable about Caspian. It's just another quiet little sleepy town. When Chief Rizzo approached the house, it's like a two-story brown um, house. It's very typical UP. There was a shadowy figure in the upstairs window which oh i love this already. i know like when you oh i love it she knocked on the door and jason cochran answered that's kelly cochran's husband so chief frizzo asked if kelly was there and he said no and chief frizzo's like well i saw somebody in the upstairs window so kelly comes like bounding down the stairs and it's like no i'm here i'm here i'm here sus yes a little right so uh what's interesting is jason cochran also immediately said, she's not here and we've done nothing wrong. Kelly, when she comes down the stairs, is like, hey, what's up? Like, chitter, 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 chitter. So she's just like a chatty, little chatty Kelly. 
<laughs> yeah. I'm just imagining. I have your mom in my head. <laughs> like the sinister version of your mom. <laughs> a sinister version of my mom in her early 30s and also on a small degree of meth, maybe. Uh, <laughs> so not, not okay, really never close. Yeah. <laughs> so not your mom no, at all. No, no. So just the running down the stairs, chitter, chitter, chitter. Yeah, that's why I didn't just call like her this. a chatty Kathy because I was like, this is nothing <laughs> like my Aunt Kathy. I just want to make that known. Anyway, back to Chitty Chatty. Kelly Cochran. Yeah. So she comes down. She's all chatty. And she's like, oh, yeah, I knew Chris. We did have a relationship. Jason Cochran is standing right there, by the way. Um, and she's like, yeah, we, we had a relationship. And um, I haven't seen him in a couple of days. But please, if you do see him, let me know. Because I'm a little bit worried, too. What was wrong with this statement? was that she told mm-hmm. Chief Frizzo in late October that it had been a couple of days since she had seen Chris. When okay. the last time anybody else had seen Chris was October 14. A couple of weeks. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Now, All right. does a slip of the tongue happen? Absolutely. I think one of the things that happens a lot in um, true crime where we talk about like interrogations and stuff is like, oh, when they refer to somebody in the past tense, that's really suspicious. No, it's not. Science tells us that it's not. Thank you. But And honestly, I have seen it around. I know I'm not the only one. A few days or a little while ago could mean anywhere from yesterday to six months ago. Exactly. Exactly. So oh. this is one of those things like I think it's it's notable to say it's been a couple of days. But by itself is it enough to be suspect? Question mark. So they have this kind of conversation, and I just picture, picture Jason Cochran just standing there, like, he's so cagey, he's so agitated, talking to this beautiful police officer about his wife's affair with this dude. Like, <laughs> ouch. You know what I mean? Yeesh. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, now... The nature of their relationship is also a bit of a mystery. So, like, if you were to ask Kelly, she would say they were in love and seeing each other, like, four or five times a week. If you ask Terry, it was more like an occasional hookup, but not really a romance, like, more physical than emotional. Tale as old as time. Exactly, yeah. So, <laughs> so I don't know who to believe. I... Um, you know, reality could live somewhere in the middle. Like, of course, the ex-girlfriend that's still in love with him may not want to mm-hmm. think of it as a, a romantic relationship, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, like, how does a married woman get away with sleeping with another guy four or five nights a week? I mean, it's not never happened. It's not never happened. That's true. So um, I want to kind of go back a second to Chris's apartment. So... Chief Frizzo pays a visit to um, the Cochran house, but she also pays a visit to Chris's apartment to see, you know, what she could see there. Chris had actually rented out this apartment from Terry's parents, Terry O'Donnell's parents, and it was situated above her parents' grocery store. So um, there's kind of like a little downtown area with a couple of these apartments, like above some of the shop fronts up there. So he was living in like downtown Iron River, which, of course, when I say downtown, Iron River is, like, two places. <laughs> but, but he was there in the hip and half and in downtown Iron River. <laughs> um, 
there's the drugstore and the coffee shop. Ah, uh, there might be a coffee shop down there now. There definitely wasn't when I was in high school. A diner. Yeah, okay. there was a diner. There was also um, like a weird space that was like a church gathering place for teenagers that I spent some time at. I don't know. Of course. Not. <laughs> so when they went to the apartment. What was interesting about the apartment was that it was very clear that he was in the process of moving. So, uh, like, pictures of the apartment, videos of the apartment, like, this guy was moving. There were boxes, Mm -hmm. suitcases, stacks of things, and then actually he had had, um, like, to-do lists in every room of how things were to be packed. So he was just, like, in Mm -hmm. the middle of that process. And what's notable to me about that is that he wasn't in the beginning of that process, and he wasn't at the end of that process. You know, he had... He's in the middle. He's doing the he's thing. He's doing the thing. So uh, what that tells us is that when he left his apartment that day, I certainly think he thought he was coming back. Yes. Yeah, it, like, it was chaos, but it was clearly not, like, breaking and entering or, um, mm-hmm. you know, somebody else, like, messing the place up. He had clearly been just working on it and, you know, getting ready to go. So everything is looking pretty bad. <laughs> Now, the Iron River Police Department is a four-person operation. So you got Chief Rizzo and three other people. Oh, damn. Yeah. Okay. So she needs help, obviously. Yeah. Um, so she calls in Michigan State Troopers, Michigan State Police, to help. And, you know, they come in, and they're looking at all the same stuff that she's looking at. But she's got this, like, tickling in her brain that says that something really bad happened here. And the troopers are of the opinion that Chris left of his own volition. So Mm -hmm. there are some, you know, things going on here that are at odds. And I think that's notable because in some ways she was kind of slowed down in how she wanted to handle this. What is there evidence that he left of his own volition? Right. There isn't any, but there's also no evidence of a crime. So one of the theories that the troopers put forth was that um, Chris basically walked off into the woods to commit suicide. So there was some thought there. Interesting. Right. Okay. Uh, Nothing to substantiate that. But where the park and ride is, is outside of town and heavily wooded area. So if he parked his car, walked off into the woods, you know, and, and shot himself or something like that. Um, that was kind of maybe why he wouldn't need the knee brace, like... Okay. Yeah. So, if you hear Chief Frizzo kind of describe the situation, I think that she had the feeling that they were, like, hindering her investigation or, like, not wanting to yeah. um, be super helpful. And, of course, the troopers are like, no, you know, we just went off of what what was actually there, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's just no evidence of Chris anywhere. It's like he walked off the face of the earth. There's no evidence of him at the Cochrane house. There's no evidence of him, you know, anywhere. But did they search the nearby woods at least for a body at all? They did, yes. So um, okay. that's kind of the other part that sucks is that now we're getting into late October and yeah. um, it's not going to be long before winter starts. Yeah, winter hits real early in the UK. Yeah. And real hard. Exactly. So, like, any kind of ground search basically has to happen now or else you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to see anything until things thaw out in the spring. So there were helicopters. There wasn't too much of a foot search other than um, Chief Rizzo kind of going out there into the forest on her own. But we are talking about a million acres of national forest. 
So it's an unbelievable landscape to be looking for something as small as, you know, a human body in. So um, there were helicopters. There was a pretty extensive air search and just nothing found. Basically, like, at this point, we're pretty frustrated, right? Like, um, (laughs) the state police is like, he killed himself. And Chief Frizzo was like, there's something wrong here. There's something not right. But the weather's getting bad. So the ground search is getting nowhere. Like, there's just nothing to see. So Chief Frizzo was like, well, okay, we got to get the Cochran's back in here for some more questioning. She invites the Cochran's to come in, and they come in on their own volition. So they're not, like, being held or anything like that. So she talks to Jason first. But the thought that, like, maybe there's a little bit of, like, a jealous husband little thing going mm-hmm. on there, you know. Good good idea. Good thought. Yeah. So they, she isolates Jason first. And Jason is such an interesting character. So he, like, right away starts talking about uh, his ill health. So Jason mm-hmm. at this point is 37. And um, despite being 37, he's in really, really bad health. He describes, like back issues so bad that if he sneezes the wrong way he won't be able to walk for a month or stand up straight been there yeah done that it's awful yeah. uh, so at first i was like that's ridiculous and then i thought well no literally have had that happen to yeah me. yeah if you've got some stuff going on then yeah sure so he goes on for a long time about his poor physical health he also goes on at length about his poor mental health prior to october so like sometime in september he had had what was basically described as a a psychological break and he was suicidal and he spent um, a few days in a hospital in rhinelander wisconsin he was institutionalized so he had had like a known history of struggling with some suicidal ideation i couldn't find anything that labeled a specific disorder um, but he had, he had, yeah, that's so common in chronic pain patients too. I bet. Yeah. And he did have like, you know, documented health issues, you know, he, he had a hard time. So that's, he talked about that at length. He never mentioned Chris in that conversation okay. and they, the police just kind of let him talk. Like, I think the philosophy was like, if we let them start talking, they'll let go, whatever they're going to let go. Yeah, you'll see that happen, hoping uh, the more they talk, the more they'll, the more chances they have to slip up. Exactly. So um, then they bring in Kelly. And Kelly, the first thing that she says, one of the first things she says is, I loved Chris. And then people are like, oh, past tense. Mm-hmm. But again, n- nah, not loved is. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, you're right. So uh, she says, I loved Chris. And then she starts talking about, like, the steamy details of their sex life together. And just, like, how it was, like, this magnetic, like, we hardly ever made it to the bedroom. Sometimes we just, like, <laughs> on the porch, you know, and this kind of stuff. And Jesus. the police are like, um, she's crazy. So... <laughs> So that's what she talks about. And then she says again that she hasn't seen him, hasn't heard from him. She shares, you know, the concern. And that she said the last day she saw Chris was basically about the same time, like the 14th. And that she had taken a plate of lasagna to his apartment so that they could have dinner together. And that that was, they they had the lasagna, they had sex, and then that was the end of of their night. So they had the lasagna, they had sex. 
Is that the last time he was seen? That's allegedly. So at this point, I feel like perhaps we're wondering, what is the deal with these Cochran's? So one of the things that Kelly and Chris bonded over was the fact that they were both transplants to Iron River, which is kind of unusual. Like, yeah, like people leave Iron River, but people don't usually come to Iron River. So the Cochran's actually grew up next door to each other in Merrillville, Indiana. So down here, my way. Yeah. It's where we got our puppy. Almost. Yeah. Murder box. Is he related to them? I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) So they actually grew up next door to each other um, in Merrillville, which for those of us who are not you and me is about an hour east of Chicago, like to the southeast. Mm And then out of, about an hour west of South Bend. So just kind of smack dab in the middle of Indiana countryside. There's a decent mall, a really good DSW. Jason was three years older than Kelly. So they like knew each other in high school and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't really date until high school. And then in their early 20s, got married. She described him as the boy next door. And they had like yeah. a pretty typical courtship and stuff like that like kind of that classic boy next door little story now kelly did have some issues with drugs in her teens and in her 20s and my sense was that jason kind of did too and that was something that they were kind of in together so they had moved to iron river um actually just the same spring the spring of 2014 so they were barely there for like any real amount of time Kelly's brother, Colton, told interviewers that it was like they just up and left. Like, there wasn't, like, mm-hmm. a plan. There wasn't really a catalyst that anyone knew about. They just up and left. Huh. Yeah. So they up and left and ended up in Iron River, which, again, kind of random. Yeah, super ra- Of all the places to go. Yeah. And it's also, like, it's not a great drive from here. Like, I really want to go up there, but it's a good seven and a half hours from here. So there's some mystery with them too. And so there's this kind of like mystery with Chris and his background. And I just think all of that kind of speaks to, again, this idea that like, you know, you've got people that are in Iron River for like generations and generations. And then you've got people that go to places like that because for whatever reason, they're kind of done with wherever they're from, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. The only reason that Jason ever told anybody why they were up there was because uh, Jason had such ill health that he really wanted to be somewhere with legal marijuana. But you could skip right across the state line over here in Niles, or if you want something beautiful, any one of these, like, beach towns in Michigan that are not, you know, seven and a half hours away and have access to that. You could have popped up to Illinois. That's true. It seems like kind of a thin reason, but that's kind of all, all there was. So... At this point, if we take what Kelly says is true, the last place that Chris was seen was in his own apartment. This does not parse with what Terry said she was told by Chris, which was that the plan was to go to Kelly's house. And then there was some surveillance footage that Chief Frizzo was able to get from a local gas station, showed Chris getting gas at about the time he would have theoretically been going to Kelly's house. So it's thin, but it does kind of raise some suspicion. Like if he was staying home that night, why would he go to the trouble of going out to get gas? So there's some suspicion there, but 
just not a lot that anyone can really work with. Like, Chief Rizzo was not singularly focused on the Cochrans, obviously. You know, Chris had rivals at work. He had one guy that was, like, particularly pissed off at him. Um, but it turned out that that guy wasn't even in Michigan in October. So he was oh. cleared, like, basically immediately. Everybody else was cleared right away. The only path, there's two paths that exist. The suicide path and the something foul play happened path, right? Mm-hmm. So there's not much to go on, but somehow in March of 2015, uh, Chief Frizzo was able to um, wiggle her way into a search warrant for the Cochran house. Yeah. So again, okay. she's amazing. She, when she finally gets into the house, and she's been waiting for months and months and months and months to get into this house, she had been able to kind of peek inside of it when they had that initial visit. Now, when they got back into the house, two things really stood out to her. One, that the entire thing had been painted. Two, that there was an absurd amount of butterflies in the house. Like, butterfly art, butterfly curtains, butterfly pillows, butterfly everything, butterfly decorations. I know, right? Butterfly decorations everywhere. It's just a lot. It's just a lot. No offense, butterflies. You're one of my favorite animals, but that's a lot of you. Yeah. She also had um, 14 butterflies tattooed on her body. She was really into butterflies. Yeah, damn. Yeah. All right. Really into some butterflies. And I guess Jason was cool with it, too. So this is months of nothing. October to March is months of nothing. There's no, like, not even a sliver of physical evidence found anywhere. So when Chief Rizzo gets in the house... She and her team, I should note too, that she, you know, knowing that she had such a small staff to work with and that the troopers were not totally like with her on her theories, she actually um, hooked up with two private investigators that were helping her with the case. Mm -hmm. So she goes into the house with her team of technicians and everything and these private investigators. And when they get in there, it's a husband and wife team. The husband notices right away that there is a cast off pattern of spatter on the ceiling of the house. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's a cast-off pattern. They also ask the Cochrans if there's any weapons in the house. And Kelly says there's a loaded twenty-two kind of underneath the TV, like under the entertainment center. And then they, uh, Jason is also a collector, because of course he is, of like knives and um, daggers and stuff like that, you know. Of course, yeah. yeah. And swords and like stuff like that. So they clear the weapons and they get the Cochrans out of the house so they can look around. And they see the spatter on the ceiling. Chief Frizzo was like, oh my gosh, jackpot, jackpot. So (laughs) uh, meanwhile, one of her technicians is also searching Kelly's computer. The thought being like, maybe you'll see a search, like how to get rid of a body, like stuff like that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I laugh, but how many times have we seen it? Exactly. I know. Like it seems like maybe at least do it in like incognito mode, but people don't. So don't tell the criminals about incognito mode. That's true. (laughs) They don't listen to us anyway, probably. Oh, I don't know. What if they do? They didn't find anything to that effect. Nothing like 10 steps to dismember a body, like nothing like that. Um, (laughs) What they did find was um, a lot of searches and saved um, like bookmarked pages for um, topographical maps of the Caspian area 
particularly focused on this um, place called the Caspian Pit, which is one of those old iron mines that has since been caved in and has become a, basically a pond in the middle of town. I mean, that already sounds ominous, just with that name. I know, Caspian Pit. Now, the Caspian Pit, also, like, basically where their street is, their house kind of backs up into the Caspian Pit, like, not right up against it, but if you were looking at, like, an aerial view of your own house, and that was your house, you'd be looking at the Caspian Pit. Another thing that was kind of interesting in this space of time that was that while the search was going on, you know, the Cochrans are obviously, like, they can't be in the house while the search was going on, so mm-hmm. they leave, and they go and hang out at the neighbor's house for a little while. The neighbors, it's like a grandma and her son and then her grandson that live in this house. Mm -hmm. They're called the sailors, the sailor family. So they go and hang out at the sailors. And the way that I kind of took their relationship was like, it's cordial, especially with David Sailor, who's the grandson. He's, He's kind of a young guy, like in his 20s. And he really liked to smoke weed. And so did Jason Cochran. So they would like hang out together and smoke weed. Mm-hmm. basically but they weren't like close friends or anything um, but that's where they kind of hung out while the search warrant was going on and I just say that because that was a relationship that had not previously been like pointed out so Chief Rizzo was like okay bookmark that maybe we want to talk to the mm-hmm. sailors at some point see if they ever saw Chris here like whatever based on the fact that there's all this search um, history for the Caspian Pit Chief Rizzo was like, we have to, we have to get in the pit and see if Chris is in there. So I want to talk about the pit for a second. I just want to put like, kind of put it out there, what this type of thing looks like. Because when you see them, like from like the street or you're walking by or whatever, it just looks like a pond. But when you're talking about a caved in mine, you are talking about tremendously deep water. Yeah. To put that into some context, the Caspian Pit is 539 feet deep. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. The average depth of Lake Superior, which is one of the largest bodies of fresh water in the entire world, is 489 feet. Now, it's... Jesus. Yeah. Its maximum depth is 1,300, but its average depth is more shallow than the Caspian Pit. Are you Googling it? Yes. I was okay, obsessed with these places um, growing up. But that so, is so scary. Yeah. This is a extremely difficult type of body of water to be searching. This is not like, this is not draining like a pond in your subdivision. It might look like that at the surface, but that's not what it is. So the divers went in. They did not find Chris's body which was a huge letdown for Chief Rizzo and her entire force. What they did mm-hmm. find was a burn barrel. Oh, yeah. okay. So by the time they got the barrel up, it was so degraded that there wasn't much like that you could pull from it. The thing mm-hmm. that was notable about it was that it was wrapped in a yellow cord that matched a clothesline that used to be outside of the Cochrane home. Now, that is highly circumstantial. It's just like neighbors corroborated. Yeah, there used to be a yellow clothesline here. And now there's a yellow um, clothesline type rope wrapped around this burn barrel. 
but it's enough to keep that little fire inside of Chief Frizzo like burning for this, you know? To be like these little things are adding up. They're starting to add up a little bit to her. The other thing that would be particularly frustrating at this point is that these searches are happening. I also think it's poignant that the search of the Caspian Pit happened October 16th, 2015, which is a year and two days after Chris was last seen. Yeah. Yeah. So in the midst of all these searches, the Cochrans disappear. Poof. What? They're gone. Where'd they go? They're gone. Poof, 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 poof. Damn it, people. Now, while they're gone, I have got something really, really crazy to lay on you. Okay. Lay it on me. I got you. While they are gone, Chief Frizzo is like, this is a good time to talk to the Sailor family. Okay. Yes. When they talk to the sailors, there is a shade of horror added to this story that is like none other in my mind. So David Saylor, again, the younger guy that he smoked weed occasionally with Jason Cochran, he was kind of the main spokesperson for this family. Like they talked to his grandmother as well and his uncle and stuff like that. All three of them described hearing from the Cochrane house like the obvious use of power tools in the middle of the night for several nights in October. Mm. Yeah. And it was always overnight. Mm. But again, it's the UP. People do weird stuff. So... Mm. But that wasn't as bad as it was going to get. Oh no. Oh dear. Oh dear. Oh dear. Now David Saylor couldn't put an exact date on this, but it was in mid to late October. Uh, the Sailor family was invited over to the Cochrane house for a cookout in mid to late October. The Sailors were kind of immediately taken aback by this because the Cochrans kind of always complained about not having any money, that they were like mm-hmm. super broke. So David thought like, it's weird that they're inviting us over, like feeding us, like, you know, spending money on throwing yeah. a dinner party essentially. So David thought that was unusual. And then when he saw the spread, he described it as like a couple hundred dollars worth of meat. That was at the barbecue. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, the invitation was mysterious, and it would turn out that the meat, too, was mysterious. Oh, Jesus. Yes. So David described the meat that he ate at the Cochrane house as something he had never eaten before. He described the meat as translucent in color and that had an unusual taste. He asked Jason Cochran about it, and Jason made kind of an offhand remark about how he used to deal in exotic meats back in Indiana, which actually was kind of true, that um, Kelly, he and Kelly had kind of a hobby farm, like a, a hobby pig farm out here in Indiana. But he would not tell David Saylor what the meat in the cheeseburgers that they ate that night was. Translucent? Yes. He described it as kind of like the color of like ground lobster or shrimp. That's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. David Saylor wholeheartedly believes that that night at that barbecue, he was fed Chris Regan's remains. Was he? It is very, very, very likely that he was. Um, Oh my God. And to take a second to just give a nod to the psychological toll that that took on David Saylor. He yeah. He stopped being able to eat. He like couldn't um 
it like broke all of his trust in people that that just yeah and yeah. you could see it in his eyes when he's describing it like in an interview like you can see that he's just impacted by this mm-hmm. so this part's gross but i had to um look into like how plausible because this is one of the parts of the story that gets really you know it's what yeah a lot really of the, sensationalized yeah oh yeah so i was like how um how plausible is this truly because it was never able to be physically substantiated. So I looked into, like, what would human meat look like? Taste like? Did you do that in incognito mode? No, and now I'm probably going to get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> what I learned was that um, historically, most cannibals would describe the taste as something akin to veal. And um, that depending on the part of the body, that it could look Mm -hmm. anything like, it could range from looking like beef to pork. Mm -hmm. So given the fact that it was unusual in taste and somebody from the UP, and I mean, there's like wild pig out there, there's venison, like you're eating that stuff up there, you know? Um, Yeah, yeah. And the fact that he couldn't place it, I think is circumstantially very unusual but based on how he described it and looking into research of interviews with like cannibals it is very plausible to me that he ate a human burger that day oh my god that poor man it changed his life you could see it in his face it just changed his life oh buddy yeah did anyone else in the family go over there or did was it just him no, the uncle and the grandmother were there as well. He was just kind of the one that was willing okay. to talk more. Yeah, the one willing to talk about it. Oh, God, that yeah. poor family. This now adds a much darker than we ever thought timeline of events for what happened to Chris Regan. Now, you know, we have to kind of go with the theory that not only was he just like, if he wasn't just like shot, you know, or something like that, he was killed, butchered and mm-hmm. fed to other people that is really dark i mean i knew this just from my cursory research from it but i didn't realize that the neighbors were essentially victimized as well yeah yeah they were and that's the part of this that just is really you know it's in- insanely just out of this world dark you know that takes us to a really dark um and depressing place and all the while, we've got no Cochran's. So mm-hmm. what's lucky was that, and I think this was contrary to Laura Frizzo's knowledge at the time. I don't think she knew about this. But her private investigators actually planted a GPS tracker on the Cochran vehicle. So nice. I know, right? So they were able to, um, before the tracker like shut down or died or whatever, they were able to track them right back home to Merrillville, Indiana. Mm-hmm. So they went back to Merrillville to literally their parents' houses. Like, they went right back home. But again, like, they, we know where they are at this point, but there's just not that much that can be done. Like, mm-hmm. okay, we know where they are, fine. But it sounds like they kind of got to Merrillville and basically just kind of picked up, like, a day-to-day life. Kelly kind of quickly found another affair partner, and this time a woman that kind of agreed to be in, like, a, um, a tight romantic relationship with her. So they really just picked up like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. (sighs) And this is why I didn't like the True Crime Daily show because they made all these jokes about her being bisexual. And I was like, screw you. That's valid. Like everything else about her is terrible. 
Yeah, like, why are you picking on the one thing that is completely normal and valid? Yeah, like, before a commercial break, they're like, and she swung both ways. Like, good lord. That's so cheap. Come on. Yeah, so I'm like, I... Also, what is it, 1993? I know. We're really still doing this? Seriously, so I'm like, I usually wouldn't, like, call out another true crime entity like that, but that just bothered me. Like, of all the things about this case that you can use to demonize these people, that's what you thats what you choose, really. That's the one that you go for? Yeah. So that just really pissed me off. As it should. Yeah. Do better. Do better, True Crime Daily. Exactly. So, like I said, we're, we've got, we've got them in Merrillville, but they're just, like, loafing around. And at about the same time, um, Chief Frizzo got her samples back from the blood spatter that they found mm-hmm. on the ceiling of the Cochrane home. Unfortunately, the samples were so contaminated with cleaning solutions and paint that the blood itself was so degraded that it was essentially untestable. So, oh, damn it. yeah, like they got some swabs for elimination from the Cochran's and Chris Regan Jr. prior to all this, but they couldn't do anything with it because it was just so degraded. So, mm-hmm. you know, they couldn't even at that point say it was de- like definitively human. So all of that has got us feeling pretty freaking desolate about this case, and the Cochrans are just chilling in Merrillville mm-hmm. until February 20th of 2016, when Kelly Cochran makes a phone call to 911 reporting that her husband is vomiting and can't talk and losing consciousness. When EMTs arrive on the scene, they find a lifeless Jason Cochran dead of an apparent heroin overdose. Oh. Yeah. When they got there, however, Kelly was immediately, like, interfering with them, like, physically kind of getting in their way and, like, talking about, like, oh, my gosh, the house is so dirty, like, we're so embarrassed, yada, yada, yada. And the EMTs are like, he's dying. Like, let us get in there. He's dying. We have Narcan. Yeah. Let's go. So one thing I read actually insinuated that if she hadn't have interfered, they would have been able to get there on time to save him. But by the time they kind of got through all of her bullshit, that he was already dead. So Jason Cochran is pronounced dead at the scene of his home. Now, in Lake County, Indiana, um, I guess the rule is kind of like, even if it's a drug overdose, there is going to be a detective assigned to it just in case there's anything weird about it. So Detective Jeremy Ogden was assigned to the case. Mm -hmm. An autopsy was done on Jason's body pretty quickly. And it shows that not only was he actually um, given or taken three times a lethal dose of heroin, his body actually showed that the cause of his death was suffocation. Okay. The thought at this point is that he was theoretically dosed with a lot of heroin to incapacitate him so that he could be easily suffocated. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, definitely a possibility, but I'm also wondering, like, he had other, like, health problems that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. Could it have been, like, you know, a lot of people die of suffocation for, from natural causes, like, when they have severe health problems, but also Kelly Cochran. Yeah. Exactly. You suspicious. Yes. Yes, exactly. So what's interesting is that basically exactly what you said, like it's suffocation. That doesn't necessarily mean you can put murder as the cause of death on a death certificate. Mm -hmm. But Jeremy Ogden 
gets wind of the fact that Kelly Cochran and Jason Cochran were involved in this investigation in Iron River. So he starts communicating with Laura Frizzo. And Mm -hmm. she's like, here's what I think happened. Here's what I have. And she ran him down, like, every detail of her case. And and Ogden was like, yeah, this is bad. So um, (laughs) let's work together and get to the bottom of this. And this is actually about the same time that uh, Laura Frizza was fired from her job because some new city management came into office and a whole bunch of stuff went down. She felt like she was being discriminated against. She launched a lawsuit against them for um, sex-based discrimination, this type of stuff. So she's just like whole hog, like, I just want to get this case solved. I don't really have a job right now. We're just getting this done. (laughs) Hell yes. Yes. So Jeremy Ogden is also um, a beautiful genius. He is like, okay, Kelly Cochran is a master manipulator. That's how she kind of moves through the world. So let me manipulate her right back. He kind of crafted this relationship with Kelly that um, he was hoping would help her to just let down, you know, some of her guard a little bit. So Mm -hmm. he like gave her his personal phone number and like texted with her, stuff like that. And there was this kind of, like, weird, like, kind of sexy teasing quality to Kelly's texts with him. I'm sorry, this is so cringy. I know, I know. But he's kind of taking it as, like, as long as she's talking to me this way, she's on my hook, Mm -hmm. right? And this is kind of where... And he was, like, this was interesting to me. He was, like, like, really huggy with her at Jason's funeral, which he went to, basically to show, like, I'm on your side. I believe you. Like, these Michigan police are, like, after you, all that. So he's really kind of getting in there. In the meantime, Kelly flees again. So she disappears again. I think she probably feels that the net is closing in. So um, you're going to love this part. So Ogden needs her to somehow like cop to something. She's in Kentucky and she is apprehended there. I'm not totally sure why. Um, This part of it is really kind of hard to find real information on, but she's apprehended in Kentucky. Um, She actually, while in prison, crafted two shivs out of um, the arms of her eyeglasses and was planning to stab a guard. So she's pretty cutthroat. So, Jesus, woman. I know. So Ogden is like, we got to get her to admit to something somehow. And so what he did is that he got in touch with this guy named Walt Ammerman. Walt Ammerman used to play, um, like, online games with Jason Cochran. So they were kind of best friends from a distance. And Walt and Jason were really close. So Jeremy Ogden convinced Walt Ammerman to pretend that he had received a letter from Jason that was an envelope with another envelope inside. And <laughs> that he told Walt to give, in the occasion that something suspicious happened to him, give this envelope to the Iron River Police Department. Mm -hmm. So he got Walt, who was very, very nervous about this entire thing, to call Kelly Cochran and say, I wanted to let you know that I I have this letter that Jason sent me that says that if he dies, to give it to the Iron River Police. And Kelly is like, ugh, don't, just don't do it. Don't do it. And she's kind of panicking. And, like, Walt is wired during this time, so you can hear this whole conversation. She's like, ugh. And he's like, yeah, I just wanted to give you a heads up, you know, all this. And interestingly, she kind of gets cool for a second. And she Mm -hmm. says, do what you got to do. That 
basically prompted Kelly to then call Jeremy Ogden because she wanted to meet him and mm-hmm. talk to him, presumably to kind of get her story out before this letter makes its way to Laura Frizzo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She wants to meet up with him in person. And then what she told Ogden was that her husband had killed Chris Regan. And this is the story that she told him. She had lured Chris Regan into the house because when she and Jason got married, they made a pact to each other that if either of them ever cheated, that it was their responsibility as a couple to then kill that person. And that this was a pact that they made on their wedding night. I mean, that's a different kind of vow. It is. Okay. It's, it's a different kind of vow. I'm going to write that into mine. Totally. I'll make sure that when uh, I deliver the ceremony, because I'm still sticking with the idea that we're doing that, um, <laughs> I'll make sure it's in there. Okay. If they didn't do it, the scorned spouse would have permission to kill them. Basically, like, kill my lover or kill me. And that was their pact. Ogden is like, is that really the whole story? Is that everything? Is that... So he's, mm-hmm. like, he's holding her hands. He's, like, just tell me the truth. It'll set you free. And she kind of, again, has this moment where it's, like, she's telling the story, she's telling the story, and then you kind of see this, like, calm, like, wash over her. And then she suddenly tells the actual truth. Tell me the actual truth. She admits to administering to Jason a fatal dose of heroin and then covering his uh, nose and mouth with her hands in order to suffocate him. Mm -hmm. She also describes conspiring with Jason to shoot Chris Regan in the back of the head and to dismember his body and dispose of it in various places in the woods kind of surrounding Caspian and Iron River. She does not Mm -hmm. admit to the butchering of his body at the barbecue. Okay. Um, but she admits to the dismembering of his body, that there would be small parcels with Chris Regan's remains in it, kind of scattered around the woods out there. She actually agrees to take police on what she called a field trip to where she knew the body to be. So they get in the car, she and Jeremy Ogden, they drive the almost eight hours from Merrillville to the Iron River area. And they're driving around, driving around, driving around. And she is, like, almost, like, making a joke out of it at this point. Like, she's, like, acting like a kid actually on a field trip. She's like, yeah, you know, if I act weird, you guys can just shoot me. Hee, 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 hee. And, um... What is this woman? I know. She is something else. She's casual. She's playful. She's... And you can kind of see from her, like why people would find her charming, like why it was kind of easy for her to like weasel her way into a new community, you know? I didn't mention it earlier because it ended up just not being relevant. I didn't want to like, I don't know, be exploitive or whatever, but Chris Regan wasn't even the only guy she was having an affair with at the same time. She was just described as kind of like a seductive like person. She's got this kind of like la-di-da attitude about it. Eventually she leads them to a, a heavily forested area outside of Iron River. They're looking around, looking around, looking around. There's not, there's nothing they can see. They find trash bags, double-bagged trash bags, which is what uh, they were told they would find. Nothing in them. So they're walking and walking and walking, and Laura Frizzo starts walking kind of further and further out. And as she gets to the end of this thatch of trees, there's a small clearing. And she's walking in the clearing, walking in the clearing, and she sees what she thinks is a rock. She approaches the rock, and when she gets closer, she can see that it's a skull with a bullet in the back. Oh, 
my God. And when she describes doing this, even in interviews now, she cries. Like, she just loses it. Mm-hmm. Um, she got right down on the ground with it. And she said that something in her knew it was Chris. And that she just sat there and prayed. Mm-hmm. And just sat there and kind of cried with him. And she said, I knew it was you. Like, she, you know, kind of told the skull. And mm-hmm. um, it's just this, like, really touching, I thought a really touching moment. Uh, that she just kind of sat there and just wanted to be with him, you know. You know, they brought the skull back to the lab, and they were able to verify that it was, in fact, Chris Regan's skull. So mm-hmm. we know that it was his. There was actually a later point, and you can see this in the um, Dead North documentary, where she is, like, retracing the steps with the documentary team. Mm-hmm. And while they're retracing the steps, one of the documentary cameramen is like, oh, my God, you guys come over here. Oh, my God, look at this. And they actually, in the space of filming that documentary, found uh, his lower jaw. Oh, my God. Like a random camera guy came across his lower jaw in that forest. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. That's all that's ever been recovered, probably due to animal okay. activity. Um, yeah. But they were able to find that. And the skull did, in fact, have that bullet hole in it. So mm-hmm. Kelly, at this point, she confessed to both murders. Long story short, she was found guilty and she's serving two life sentences. In the courtroom, she is described as smiling satanically. Yeah. Okay. And particularly spending a lot of her um, eye contact and attention on Terry O'Donnell. Okay. She does have a creepy smile, like a really disconnected from reality smile. Yes. And that is, um, it's interesting that you say that because I want to talk a little bit about a conversation between her and her mom. So okay, she's got this like disconnected smile. She's got, you know, kind of all this stuff going on. And Chief Frizzo really believes that Kelly Cochran was the mastermind behind all of it, that Jason was kind of, he was the muscle, you know, but that she was the one kind of orchestrating everything. So in some interviews later, like in the police questioning and stuff like that, while she's, you know, in custody, when we know that there's going to be a guilty verdict, she tells police at one point that there are 21 other bodies. What? Yes. When pressed further, she siphons it down to nine. The identity of these bodies is at this point unknown, or at least mm-hmm. if there are theories on that, they're not in the public domain. Okay. Chief Frizzo believes this to absolutely be true. Kelly Cochran said these bodies were in Michigan, Indiana, Tennessee, and Minnesota. And she describes them as friends, which kind of parses with the idea that this was this kind of pact that they had kind of continually in their marriage, that she might have all these affairs, kind of where they were skipping around, and and that they were killing her affair partners. I feel like I'm going to need a lot more evidence for that. Yeah, and that's the problem. There's like effectively none other than the fact that she said it. Um, her brother, Colton Gaboyan, that was her maiden name, Gaboyan, believes it to be true. He thinks that it's true. Yeah. But I, I could see it, but I need more evidence. Do we even know that she was ever in Minnesota or Tennessee? We do know or... that. We do know that she was in those okay. places. Yeah. Yeah. We just don't know who these people could be. We don't really have a timeline. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, like, is she just kind of at this point, like, she knows she's on the hook, so let's get some extra clout. Uh, she does seem like somebody that would just talk for attention. Yes, exactly. Exactly. 
you know, like she doesn't want to be left alone. Oh, if I say this, I'll get more attention or totally. was it like Henry Lee Lucas would do that. Mm-hmm. And, and that seems to be like kind of something that she would continually do is like she seemed like she was the type of person that if you didn't love her, she hated you. So when she was like in that jail in um, briefly in Kentucky that, you know, she made those shivs for a female guard mm-hmm. because she just didn't like her. So it's just kind of this like very mm-hmm. dramatic response to like any kind of negative stimuli. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like in a way, I would believe that she killed more just because of how thought out it feels like mm-hmm. this murder was. Yeah. Um, but I think what, what makes me question it is how just kind of random that confession is and then say it's 21. Oh, no, it was just nine. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's also striking to me like. So Chief Rizzo believes that number. She believes there's other bodies. And if that's true, then um, Kelly Cochran is one of the most prolific female serial killers in American history, if this is true. Yeah. But Chief Rizzo believes it primarily because if Kelly had never been coerced into confessing, not I don't mean coerced as in like a gross coercion, um, but if she hadn't been prompted to confess, we should say, that the crime probably never would have been solved. Oh, yeah, probably not. Well, and and I think that's what I'm thinking about all of those locations. Tennessee, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Indiana's a little bit different, but in the UP, there's all that animal activity, like you said. Yeah, like, it's so remote. Yeah. You're not going to find anything. Exactly. So, like, you know, and not a lot of people are just, like, stumbling in that particular clearing, like, mm-hmm. where the skull was found, anything like that. So, I betcha... It wasn't their first go, but if it was nine, it also was like, if it was nine, they would have had to basically been doing this for their entire marriage because she um, was born in 82. So she's not. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's young. So it's not like she's like in her 70s, like with the whole lifespan behind her of, you know, kind of racking up this body count. So Mm -hmm. I kind of, I think nine seems like you'd have to be like very, very, very productive to to get that done you know in all these different places yeah yeah it's also places though that people do go missing it is yeah and especially missing like you know kind of like they thought happened to chris in the beginning like you're a hiker that's gone gone lost that's not a unusual thing to happen up there no no it happens all the time yeah. it's really scary but so um i want to talk about her mom for a second so yes. kelly Conference mom just seems like a sweetheart of a woman from Merrillville, Indiana. And there's this taped phone call between her and Kelly. So in the uh, Dead North documentary, the mom talks about, like, she knew that Kelly had problems, like, with drugs and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, but that she never saw her as having these, like, deep-seated issues. So she's, like, as a mom, she's, like, looking back at, like, this, her child's whole life and is, like, what should I have seen, you know, yada, yada. So there is a conversation taped between Kelly and her mom while Kelly is in jail. And her mom is basically, like, have you always been like this? And Kelly said, yeah, mom, you know I've always been like this. And her mom is, like, I, I, no, I did not know that. Have you, do you care? Do you feel anything at all? And she's, like, nope. So, yeah, when we talk about, like, cause... Like, pure antisocial. Exactly. There's just nothing there. It's so... 
And her voice is like so cool, calm, and collected. And like she'll talk to cameras, she'll talk to any of these documentaries. She's in all of them. There's just nothing there. Nothing. You need to watch these. Yeah, you should. You really should. Dead North is a four-parter, so it's just, uh, we did it in two nights. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely very doable right now, even. You could get off our call when we're done and go watch it. I will probably plop it on in the background while I'm packing boxes. Yeah, that's amazing. Just wait till you see the beautiful Chief Frizzo. So um, (laughs) the last nugget I want to get in there is a happy nugget. Okay. So, um, you know, there's relief for Chris Regan's kids that, you know, they had their day in court. Kelly Cochran mm-hmm. is going away forever. They have, um, you know, they have some of their father's body and they know what happened. Why Kelly Cochran did it explicitly, she, what she told police was that um, she and Jason killed Chris together and she killed Jason basically as an act of retribution for taking from her, like, her great love in Chris. So I think there's probably more to it than that. But that's that's as far as she's told us. I feel like there's so much more story here. I think there probably is. Now It's just all hidden in Kelly's head. Exactly. And I, I think that eventually it's going to come out, though. I really do. Because she is so chatty and she's so attention-seeking that I think as soon as she stops being in the news... She's going to want to be back on the news again, you know. Let me sit down with her. I want to interview her. Do it. She's just over in Michigan, man. Road trip. So um, the happy, happy, happy part, okay, is Mm -hmm. that goddess Laura Frizzo (laughs) met in this whole process the beautiful Jeremy Ogden. She's fired from her job. She's like, you know what, whatever. She and Jeremy are together now like literally together and she said that she felt like it was kind of a gift from chris regan in a way that she couldn't find chris regan until she found jeremy ogden and that somehow that all kind of came together for her to be able to find chris do they have little true crime babies they don't because they're a little old for that but um they do have like beautiful pictures of them at the beach together and she moved down here to merrillville and they're just like together and it's awesome you should come meet her sometime i would run into her at the dsw i know oh i'm so obsessed with her oh my god (laughs) i i maybe we should go to dsw isn't that sweet though that's sweet yeah so your thoughts Uh, that's my story my thoughts i mm, i want to know what's in kelly cochran's head man i know there's stories in there that write her a letter like i could get out maybe i will you should you totally should i mean if she's that chatty maybe she could guest on uh this show maybe (laughs) that would be fun (laughs) get her on the zoom and we're like hey (laughs) i just i want to know i want to know if these were her only kills Mm -hmm. i want to know what was behind it i really want to know the truth behind the cannibalism because that is just such an extra sadistic act yeah it's so it's so disturbing and it adds that layer of like not only did she want to just completely desecrate chris regan's remains but that she also wanted to like cause that harm to the sailors well and I'm always really, really intrigued by 
those actions and behaviors that like if the sailors never knew then they would have just gone on with their lives but Kelly would have also always known. Yeah, that's true. And so I guess I like I'm always really interested in in events like that where like this very sadistic person knows and it's literally only for their pleasure yeah. to torture somebody unknowingly. And that's like it also makes me wonder about the nature of her relationship with Jason too. Like was that something that they were like truly conspiring in? Mm-hmm. You know, cuz I don't think that you could probably butcher an entire human body on your own. You know. Yeah, and if Jason was as fragile as he says that he was, I I wonder what the kind of the dynamics of that yeah. relationship were and how, you know, emotionally, psychologically abusive that was. Yeah, and that was something that Jeremy Ogden said too. He lamented in one article that I read from the Northwest Indiana Times that he just would like give anything to have a conversation with Jason Cochran because he thinks he could probably mm-hmm. get to him and yeah. you know he wants to know like what was that relationship truly what really was that like yeah yeah so there you have it oof that was a heavy one that's a doozy huh yeah good job though damn Thank you. You always leave me with questions. Good ones, though. I know. That's what I like to do. That's what a good educator does. You don't leave with all the answers. You leave with smarter questions to ask next time. Fine. (laughs) You did your job. I did. So speaking of next time, tell us what to expect Mm -hmm. from our next episode. So this is not on purpose, but we're going right back to your home. Oh, which one? In the DH. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, we are going to, like, hardcore your backyard. Yeah, like, literally a block away from my church. Like, this freaks me out. Um, We are going to tell the story of a our first family annihilator. Mm. A family annihilator with a history of more annihilations. Yeah, this is such so. a strange, strange, terrible case. And another one of those cases that we don't have a ton of history on the perpetrator about, Mm. but we're going to talk about it. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting. So please come back for that. Yeah. So please come back. We're going to visit Tommy's hometown backyard, like her street. Sorry about it. Yeah. Well, you know what? Let's just dig up all of my personal baggage while we're at it. You were gone by the time this one happened. That's true. Thank goodness I was here. Where other terrible things happen. But I moved from there to frickin' Belgana's country. Like, okay. Yeah, well, we can talk about all of the terrible things that happen in uh, Chicago. Yeah, what did we do, dude? I don't know. We messed up. Well, and now I'm moving to Chicago Ripper territory. Yeah, you are. Like, I'm literally between Chicago Rippers and uh, John Wayne Gacy in my new home. This is crazy. We should probably do a Gacy episode at some point. At some point, but I feel like so many people have covered him that it's hard to, like, build a new perspective there. Yeah, it is. It totally is. Anyway, uh, a reminder to please enter our giveaway for various Mid-Ratchet and Midwestern stuff. Woo! Tell your friends about us. Mm -hmm. Keep coming back. Connect with us on the socials. Connect with us on the socials yeah. and leave us good reviews and say nice things to your friends and the internet. Say nice things to the internet. Yeah, tell Reddit about us because um, you know that's going to get yeah. us on fire if we do that. Fuck yeah, tell Reddit. Should we get a Twitter? 
I hate Twitter. If we're doing it, it's on you to to handle that. I hate Twitter. Uh, I can't deal with it. Twitter stresses me out. Me too. So on that note, as always, be nice. Eat cheese. And we We love love you. You. Hand heart. Hand heart. Bye. Bye. That. Yeah, I mean, I'll just lay here and you can do what you want, but it's not going to be like a super fun experience. <laughs> <laughs> and there was garlic bread, so also you smell on top of it. <laughs> so. I'm cutting all of it. <laughs> You're cutting it? Why? It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs>